and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Tiffany Bova is the global growth evangelist at Salesforce, and we'll get into exactly what that means and what it entails in today's conversation. She's also an author. She's the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of two books, Growth IQ and The Experience Mindset which is all about changing the way you think about growth. So we'll talk about what she means by the word experience and why it's so important to her. And growth is obviously a big part of today's conversation. Over the past two decades, she's led large revenue producing divisions at businesses ranging from startups to the Fortune 500. She's also been a research fellow at Gartner, which we get into in today's conversation, where her cutting edge insights helped Microsoft, Cisco, Salesforce, Hewlett Packard, IBM, Oracle, S&P, AT&T, Dell, Amazon, you get the picture, a lot of prominent companies helping them expand their market share and grow their revenues. 
She's been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 twice. And she's also the host of the podcast, What's Next with Tiffany Bova. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Tiffany. She's extremely thoughtful, innovative, curious, and creative when it comes to how we can think about not just serving our customers, but also serving our people, our employees, and how we can do both really, really well. A lot of polarities in this conversation, a lot of use of the power of and, so you'll know that I'm going to be a fan of Tiffany's work, and I know you will too. So here is Tiffany Bova. Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm going to dive right in with you. And I don't know how else to say this, but when people talk about loved ones or death or gratitude on these podcasts, it's often I find some of the best episodes I've had is when people are open and honest about people that have touched their lives. In your last book, you reference your mom and, uh, you dedicated the book to her and then you talk about her in the acknowledgement. You even talk about her as a fictional character at the end of the book. Uh, so I had to start there. And in the experience mindset, your book, uh, the last thing she said to you, which you reference in your dedication to the book of the book to her, the last thing she said to you before she passed was I just thought it was beautiful. So I'm going to read it. And then I want to get your perspective on it. So she said to you, I could tell you to remember the million things I told you, but the most important is to be happy. When I read that, how does that make you feel? It was a surprise statement, I think. I, I don't know what I expected her to say. Because I, I, I asked her and I said, hey, mom, I'm working on the final sort of parts of the book. She goes, oh, it was so good. You know, she hadn't read it, right? But that's okay. She read it in her mind. That's all that mattered, right? And she said, oh, you know what I would say? This is what I'd say. And that's what she said. It, it was, it's a shorter blurb of, uh, she said stuff after it, but, but that sort of main one. I mean, it was really one of the last things that sort of, that conversation was the last full conversation I ever had with her. And um, I, I think that, I think, I think in some ways she didn't know what I was gonna do with my life, I think. So, you know, in the end, um, I think she felt that, no matter what I chose to do, she just wanted me to be happy. And uh, I think such a simple statement with so many pieces and parts to it, but she was highly influential in my life. Uh, she was a teacher for 30 years. And if I reflect, you know, in many ways, I am a teacher in some way, right? We do these podcasts. We hope someone takes something away from it. Um, I am full of so much gratitude for all the things uh, that she was able to uh, bring to my life. I was blessed to have been able to almost travel completely around the world before I was 18 years old. I mean, there isn't many people who can say that gave me exposure to so many things in different cultures and people, and it just shaped so much of, of who I am. So, um, the last book, we had a big party when my book published, uh, this time, unfortunately she wasn't here for it. So it, it's, this book is like one of those, I I'm so thrilled it published and I'm so glad it's doing so well but I literally turned it in, you know, the day, the day she passed. So it's got this real mixed emotion for me. Um, but, uh, I felt that that was a great dedication to the book. I think we all have to remember that through all the noise, we have to find a way to stay and be happy. 
was happiness something that you have focused on for for much of your life or is that something that's sort of changed your perspective on focusing on happiness since she delivered that yeah that's what that's what i mean like it was a it was a it wasn't, I don't know what I expected. Let me just say that. Like, you kind of don't know, you know, there was lots of things going on. So you kind of almost don't know what you're going to get back anyway. Um, but that that's what she chose. That was something that I wonder if she worried that I wasn't happy. Right. Or I wonder if she was, she was feeling content that I was happy or, you know what I mean? Because you, I couldn't get into, you know, more sort of depth on that conversation with her. So at just face value, um, uh, I also think through it all, uh, she was a little worried that, you know, it was going to be a rough blow to me. And, um, you know, in many ways it, it, it has been, uh, I'm an only child. And so, you know, every, all this stuff fell on my shoulders. Um, and, you know, I think people, I would tell you this, if you have an older parent and you don't have a plan, <laughs> make a plan, like what they want, what they don't want long-term care, short-term care, be in their house, be in a facility, power of attorney, advanced directives, like not for really this conversation, but I will tell you, I had a crash course in six weeks on everything I didn't ever want to know about Medicare and Medicaid and long-term care and hospice and long-term hospice and all of that. Like it is definitely something that I don't think too many people talk about and you just get caught really off guard of not knowing how to navigate this entire part of a system that is severely broken um, and without an advocate, I, I just can absolutely see how people get lost in the cracks. Well, it speaks to what you're prioritizing and what's intentional. And this podcast is called Intentional Performers, reading your material, listening to you on podcasts. A big part of your message is being intentional with employees and making sure that you're asking them the questions and you're focused on them and you're prioritizing them. So there is maybe a link there to your work if we go a little bit underneath. And I'm wondering for you, like I read your stuff, I see what you're doing. And then I think, oh, and she has this full-time gig, right? And so I'm right. I'm like wondering, and people ask me these questions, like how do you have all the time to do all the things you're doing? For you, when it comes to priorities, how do you prioritize your work at Salesforce while also promoting a book, while also doing keynotes, um, while also having a life? Uh, like, how do you prioritize your time and what have you found is helpful or that you do intentionally to make sure that you're prioritizing the right things at the right times? Yeah, it's a great question. And one I get often, um, my job I, I'm super blessed. Let me start there by saying that, you know, I had been a practicing sales, marketing, and customer service leader for a little more than almost 15 years. And then I spent a decade as an advisor and consultant and analyst at a company called Gartner, advising some of the largest tech companies in the world on go-to-market and growth. And Salesforce came to me and asked me to continue doing what I had been doing, but do it for us and for our customers and the market. So in many ways, what I get to do every day is my job, is my role. I'm an individual contributor. I don't have a team. And so that allows me the freedom, if you will, to be able to sort of be a thought leader and put out thoughtful content and really think about what the future of growth looks like for organizations. And it challenges me every day to have these really inspiring and interesting conversations with leaders in all kinds of industries across, you know, size and segment and region. And you start to hear sort of these signals and patterns 
you know, I might talk to a very small business who has challenge A, and then I talk to, you know, a Fortune 50 company, and they have challenge A as well. But the difference between those two is, you know, 100,000 employees and very deep pockets and, you know, access to access, uh, um, capital and, you know, systems and tools and people, small business, not so much, but same challenge. And so how do you take those learnings and apply them and bring that forward? And really, it's just an opportunity to think every day, have great conversations, look for trends, be able to collate that and aggregate that into something that becomes a digestible story, which I can then tell to our customers and, and or prospects, right, and or the market. So it's a really unique position and it is really influencer oriented. It is really, you know, my title is uh, global growth evangelist, right? It is really evangelizing sort of that art of what is possible. And I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said like, I want to do what you're doing. And I'm always like, what do you think I do? Right? Because sometimes they think it's one thing, right? And it's completely different, but it is really this being very intentional about how you want to grow your business and what are the things you need to have happen. What don't you get as an individual contributor that you may have gotten when you were part of a team and, and working at, in other spaces and other organizations? I, when I was in sales, like sales is absolutely, even though people may think it is a um, individual sport, <laughs> it is a team sport. Like as a salesperson, you never do it solo. Like you may call in executives to help you close a deal, or you may be in a pre-sales engineer, or you may bring in finance to help you negotiate a deal, or you bring in legal to negotiate the contract. I mean, rarely is it an individual sport. And growing up, I played sports. I was a high-performing athlete and, and I was an individual uh, sport player. Like I played tennis and very young, like nine to 12. Um, and I was number one in my state during that time. Like I was a pretty good tennis player, but I didn't like the individual sport. I wanted to play team. And then when I started to play team sports, then it was like, I loved the collaboration and the camaraderie and the we win together, we lose together. We're there for each other how to be coached better and how to, you know, win with your, 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 your head high and, you know, uh, lose with your head high. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, it's sort of, you have to do all of those things. And so as an individual contributor now, I do miss team. I do miss that team, but the good news is there is a team of us individual contributor influencers. There's about a half dozen of us. And so we behave as a team, um, you know, in that way, very, uh, well-versed and seasoned individual contributors. So we could all run in six different directions, but we tend to be very connected because we know the value of sharing that information, you know, across functionally, if you will, and with each other, even though we are individual contributors. All right. We're going to use some of your tennis background in this conversation. You coined a phrase coopetition in your first book, Growth IQ. And and that term just stuck out to me because I always, I, I've been involved with some of the best sports teams in the world, and they all talk about competitive spirit being a baseline for what they're looking for in their talent. If you're not competitive, you're not going to be very successful in sport. And if you look at the origins of that word compete, it actually comes from the Latin word competere. And competere means to strive with. And let's use Wimbledon as an example. And we've had in the, on the men's side, three legends in tennis going at it over the last 
15 years, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, and they're competing with each other, but they're striving with each other. And they were able, the three of them, to be some of the best tennis players ever. There's an argument for each of them to be the best tennis player ever, and they were all at the same time. And then on the women's side, we had one dominant fixture for the last 20 years in Serena that just seemed to be beating everybody at a clip we may not have ever seen in sport before. And I go back to that team sport concept. We all value competition, but there have been athletes who are highly competitive and they're not necessarily collaborative. And I am so curious about how teams are built because I think in sports, sometimes we over-index on competitive spirit and under-index on collaboration. I think we see that with individual contributors in sales or in business as well, where they go for an alpha who's a producer, but they might not be a great team player. Your term, coopetition, made me think about it even from an internal and external way. Like Nadal needs Federer and Federer needs Nadal to bring out their best. And are there ways that they can actually collaborate? Can you talk about coopetition and can you talk about this idea of competitiveness and collaboration and how we can potentially have both in our organizations and our teams in our programs? Yeah. So coopetition was really a way for me to say, look, brands are going to compete, but sometimes we are better together and it's impossible still yet. Right. That, we rarely does a company do 100% of everything they need to do on their own. Like, you know, even if you are a company that builds all your products on your own, unless you have your own planes and delivery trucks and service people, right? Like you are partnering with FedEx or UPS. And, and you could even argue that if you look at what Amazon did, right, they wanted to control more of their supply chain. So they tried to do more and more on their own. But then yet, you know, it was the United States Postal Service. So is that co-op, is that competition, is that competition for them since they have their own delivery trucks and they have their own planes? Like, well, in some situations, United States Postal Service might be better. In other situations, it might be better. And in my first book, Growth IQ, when I use that term coopetition, I just I use the airline industry as a great example. You know, in the 70s. When we would fly, you'd get off one airline. And if you had to get on another airline, you literally had to get your bags, check in, go to another gate, right? Get on your plane. Maybe, you know, security was very different then, but then, you know, take off and creating sort of a one world alliance, right? Was a way to say from a customer standpoint, we are not forcing them to leave, go check in, get on. We now can see their flight through multiple airlines, right? You get on an American, you land in Europe, you get on BA, you get off a of BA, you get onto Iberia, right? You keep going. And it may be one ticket that you've checked in that you started in Los Angeles and you end up in, you know, Johannesburg, but it, it just is one seamless flight, even though you've hopped on different airlines. So in the customer's mind, if they viewed it as competition, they would have forced everybody to go, I'm not gonna help BA, I'm not gonna help Iberia, I'm not gonna help BA. But if they think in the customer's mind, it would be, hold on, how do we create a way by which it can be seamless? We can do you know, revenue share, we can share flight numbers, you know, like how can we create it so that it's more streamlined for everybody so that we know if a flight is late, et cetera, et cetera. I could keep going, right? But I think that simple example, everyone can go, yes, I get it right? Like I get it. I know I'm on one airline, I'm on another airline. And while it doesn't always work out, it seem as seamless as it can be because they made the decision to be in sort of coopetition with each other. Right. And, so there's value there. And I know like 
when I lived in San Francisco, Virgin uh, America was this amazing airline that I would fly from San Francisco to Washington DC and actually want to like stay on the plane and like enjoy the the experience that much. And we saw JetBlue and we saw these companies come up. And it seems like today as we're recording this, basically the airlines have said, people are going to pick based on price. Uh, like I feel as though they've sort of waved the white flag and obviously Southwest Airlines was a legendary customer service company, but I see that industry. And I, I was actually having a conversation with someone yesterday about this, that the airline industry at the end of the day, I, I pick based on price. Most of the time I'm like, if I'm flying somewhere, it's ease. What's what's nonstop and direct. And then what's the cheapest, because it feels like they've all sort of given up when it comes to the customer experience. Am I reading that wrong? I'm sure you look at this and study it quite a bit uh, in the airline industry. No, I, you know, it's just an easy example. Now, could I argue that the reason they did it was 100% for us passengers? Probably not, right? It was a little bit like cost savings, supply chain, you know, all of those things, right? Sharing in costs. There is some value from a business perspective. I think in this case, it was both. And so for companies that want to be product-led, i.e. flying someone from point A to point B, like that is the product, transportation, and then not thinking customer-led, okay, but hold on, what does the customer want? You know, that balance is really important. Um, and, and so, you know, there are many industries that are still very, very stuck in product-led. Like our product will sell itself. It's the best. It doesn't matter that this, this, and this is more difficult or, you know, our competition does this, this, and this differently. Like this is how we do it. We are product led. And, and because of that, we can, you know, we're innovating, we're most innovative. We've got the better products, et cetera. But in reality, then it's completely devoid from what it is that customers want. Then you have other brands that's like, we are absolutely customer obsessed which could be Amazon, right? Like that was their mantra. Like we are going to be obsessed. It's all about what they want and meeting these ever exceeding expectations from the customer. But it puts a ton of pressure on the internal organization to keep up with that pace and that impacts employees. So I think the approach um, philosophically and culturally for leaders is being more intentional about what kind of company are you, right? Are you product-led, internally focused, are you customer-led, externally focused? Are you a balance of the two? Do you consider both? Do you not consider the customer very Steve Jobs and say, because they don't know what they want, so I'm going to lead them to what they want? That kind of company and leader is one in a lifetime or a handful in a lifetime. You could argue there's a handful of leaders that are able to do something like that and have a philosophy like that and then be able to create a category and market like Apple has been able to. So finding a blend between those two, back to our words from the beginning of this conversation, it has to be intentional. I think this is where leaders make the mistake. They do status quoism. It's the way we've always done it. We've always won. Or worse yet, we're growing. We're growing. We're growing fast. We don't need to change. What we're doing is working. So we're just going to keep doing it. And then over time, they start to see that the growth starts to stall. It starts to slow. It may even become flat or negative. And by the time that happens, it's very hard to course correct. It's interesting. As I prepared for this conversation, I listened to a few podcasts that you've been on. And obviously, you're on this podcast to share everything you know and your wisdom and your information. And you mentioned being a teacher earlier, but a lot of your work is actually saying, hey, be curious. 
ask the questions. This isn't a one size fit all. Don't just copy what jobs did or don't just copy what we're doing at Salesforce. Figure out what is intentionally best for you. And so I'm curious for you, as you think about your teaching, how did you start to see the world from an and perspective instead of an or perspective? Because it seems like a lot of your work, even what we talked about with competition or this idea around the experienced mindset where you're saying, hey, focus on the customer and the employee. Um, where did polarity come come out for you? When did that start to be something that you focused on the and more than the or? You know, I I think it came through this second group of work. So, you know, I mentioned very quickly, I had a first book called Growth IQ and it was 10 paths to growth. And the very first path in that book was customer experience. And then I had nine other paths, one of which was coopetition, one was partnerships, um, right? So it was just partnership and coopetition um, was really my way of saying, right? Partnering with somebody or working with someone who you compete with are sort of two different things. Um, and through that 60,000 word book, it was a very and play, right? You're going to do one growth path and another growth path. It was never going to be basically the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. So the one thing is it's not one thing. You got to sort of find your way to the and. And within customer experience, I think I mentioned employee of the 60,000 words in the entire book, maybe 150 words. Like I, I'm giving myself way more credit than I deserve on that. Maybe 150 words. I totally missed it. And when I came here to work at Salesforce, you know, I, I really realized the power of culture as driving a great place to work, which we are. We're one of the most innovative companies in the world. So great culture drives great innovation. You get those two things right. You get greater growth rates. We're the fastest growing enterprise software company. So could I prove that? Could I prove the and play, right? That happy employees and happy customers and great growth. Was there connection? Was there direct correlation? Was there causation? And while really intuitive, there wasn't a lot out there. So I think I have always felt the and, but I will tell you lots of times the executives push back on the end. They think there's like, you know, one. And that has a lot to do with focus and prioritization. So you may focus on one and you may prioritize one, two, three. It doesn't mean that's an or, it just means it's number one and number two and number three. Now you prioritize from there, but rarely is it one thing and you can run to that one thing without having other things have either a very large impact or a, a you know, a softer impact, if you will, right? It, it's, if you say, look, I want to lose weight. Is it, I want to, I have to work out and that's all I need to do. And I can eat terribly and get terrible sleep and, you know, maybe potentially smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol and know all the things that don't lend to, you know, getting into shape. So if you're going to say, I'm going to get into shape, then it's, I need to work out. I need to eat right. I need to get sleep. I need to, you know, maybe cut things out of my diet or out of my habits. It is a, and play. It's like when people say, well, do performance enhancing drugs really, you know, make an athlete a top performer. I'm not for them. Please don't hear that I'm for them, but you cannot take them and sit on your couch and go win Tour de France. Like you can't sit on your couch and go win Mr. Olympia. You can't sit on your couch and go win the 100. Once again, I'm not advocating it. I'm saying that it has to be an and play, right? Rarely is there one thing that's going to fix the fact that you're slow or you're out of shape, right? You just have to 
um, understand everything is an and play. I know you wrote the second book without the idea of writing the second book. Uh, you weren't planning on writing the second book. And then you wrote a second book. If you were to write a third book, I would, I would go lean into that idea because to me, there's the power of polarity, which takes two things and looks at them. Cool. But what I'm hearing from you, or what I would even say is, and what I'm hearing from you is multiple ands. And in those multiple ands, you open up even more possibilities, but you're not opening up these possibilities, just keep things super broad. You're actually doing that to then create an order of what is most important to us today, what's most important to us 10 years from now, a year from now, and you're getting more nuanced and more clarity around how you're spending your time. And it, everything you're saying makes a lot of sense because especially in tech companies, they move fast and like use artificial intelligence right now. Everyone's adding artificial intelligence as an and to their platform, whether they're doing that to impact their stock price or their valuation, who knows? But that is something that we're seeing and it would be interesting to see, all right, well, what do we go beyond that? How do we go beyond that? And I'm going to bring up a person that I just heard from, and you may even know him, um, but the CEO of Uber. Um, so Dara, uh, who's in the Bay Area. And uh, I was thinking about him because I just recently heard him speak at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And he knew that Uber, he'd experienced Uber as a customer, but he hadn't experienced Uber as a driver, uh, as an employee. And Dara, I think it's like every three weeks, gets in an Uber and drives and experience what it's like to be a driver. Uh, and I'm, I was curious to get your perspective on this because so much of your work is to try to understand things from an employee's perspective, not just a customer's perspective. And if you think about a CEO of a big company, is that a good use of their time? Like really actually experiencing it, doing the work? Um, and we don't even, I'm just using him as an example. You don't have to talk specifically about him, but is that a good and to add to how they're using their time is actually get in to the trenches and experience what it's like to be the employee? I couldn't agree with that approach more. Like it is fascinating to me when <clears throat> I, I, for those of you listening in the U S like the TV show undercover boss, like that is a masterclass. Uh, in, in the question you just asked, Brian, the whole concept of the show is I'm a leader of a company, right? And they're going to put a disguise on me and I'm going to go into my organization and I'm going to flip burgers and deliver products and work the retail store and make pizzas and, you know, sell this product or, you know, work in the warehouse or whatever it might be. Right. And they do this on this TV show for, let's say, you know, 48 minutes, right? The rest is commercials, but let's call it 45 minutes of time. And you get a window into their aha moments of my goodness. I didn't know that my employees had to do this every single day and that this wasn't working or that they had to pick boxes up. And that's why we have so many on the job injuries because we don't have a forklift in the back of the truck or that my storage closet in the back of my clothing retail is just stuffed with clothes that were all returns. And I've got millions of dollars of inventory just sitting in some back office doing nothing and no one knows it's there or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is the power of getting out of your four walls and managing the business from a spreadsheet or a dashboard or even a CRM tool like Salesforce, right? It is, that's only going to give you part of the picture. It might be a good picture, like, woo, we're growing. It might give you a bad picture, like we're not growing. 
but the larger the organization, you are now surrounded with people that are interpreting the data and telling you the story and maybe leaving out the bad things because they don't feel psychologically safe that they can tell you things are going wrong because you may say it's their fault. So they just act like everything's right. And then they're managing it, you know, downstream on their own, but that leader never has full visibility into what's happening. So there was a book um, back in 1982, I think it was published, um, and, and you know, from uh, Mr. Tom Peters, um, and it was called In Search of Excellence. It was like one of the, it was the first business book that was ever given to me. I was in high school, so mind you, I did not read it, you know, but it was given to me, like, read it. I think I read the first two pages, and I'm like, why would I read this? And then the second book was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People also, which sat on my desk, and I didn't really read it, <clears throat> excuse me, until I was in my 20s. But he has a concept called management by wandering around, and it came from Hewlett Packard and came from um, Mr. Hewitt, uh, Hewlett that would go into the manufacturing plant and see them working and really understanding what was happening and really improving the supply chain. And something as simple as going out and asking and having that conversation or driving in an Uber for a week, or now the Starbucks CEO, I think is doing a couple of hours a month, which I think is not enough. Like, I think he should open the store, close the store, work the drive through be a barista, cl clean it, like do the ordering, do the stocking. Like you need to do it like to the point of the way that the Uber CEO did for a full week. So you can really understand um, when you don't have that understanding, you start making decisions that have unintended consequences to your people that then impact your customers. And if you don't have line of sight on this, you find yourself in a situation where your employees want to unionize, your employees want to strike, your employees, you know, and we see a lot of that now because many employees are saying our employers are not listening to us. And it's not employers, it's not the company. It is people are not listening to them, right? Their managers and then their managers' managers and all the way up the chain. So having your own story and, and visibility and conversations with people who are individual contributors way out of your realm of leader, you know, management, like they don't report to you. They might report to you 10 layers down in that way. Right. That is so powerful. Um, you know, that, that it is something that that's my first piece of advice. If you're trying to figure out how to improve satisfaction, customer experience, growth, um, you know, reduce friction in the sales process, improve your marketing, whatever you're trying to do in the business, the first place to go is to your employees because they usually know the answer to the questions you're trying to, to find out. And you do a good job of also breaking down all the research and data. I mean, your book has tons of data and research that you all conducted. And one of the ones that was staggering to me was especially on the retail and business to consumer side, where they are interacting with other humans on a regular basis. And humans can be really difficult <laughs> to, to deal with on a regular basis at those two places. The numbers are, are pretty staggering. When you talk about the idea of wandering, uh, it made me think of the idea of the exploring versus the exploiting. And a lot of people will talk about you know, as we get older and we get into our career, we try to exploit the information that we have rather than continue to explore. And when we're younger, we have the curiosity to go explore and go find new things. And as I'm hearing you talk about what you'd recommend leaders do, uh, it makes me think of the concept that you bring up in the book, which is the expert versus the beginner mindset and the importance of being a beginner because that Uber CEO might not even know what it's like to 
drive. Like he actually didn't own a car, he said, before he uh, became the CEO of Uber. So he needs to actually experience what it's like to be a beginner in a car, let alone pick up a stranger and have them in the back of your seat doing whatever the heck they're doing back there. Um, talk to us a little bit about the expert versus beginner mindset and how you think about that for leadership and also for organizational culture. Yeah, I would say that, look, the in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. That is an old um, Buddhist quote. And I always start my keynotes with that and literally say, so even with this podcast, like if you can have I can get 25 minutes or 30 minutes of you to have a beginner's mind. Give me, give us a little bit of space where you are willing to challenge the status quo. You allow yourself to go, huh, I hadn't thought of that before. Or, hmm, you know, I am, uh, I, I never, I thought I was better at that than I actually am. You know, and think about sports coaches. You know, I could, I could take golf lessons every single day, seven hours a day or eight hours a day, seven days a week for, you know, the rest of my life, I would never make tour. <laughs> I might become a better golfer, but I would never make tour. But if I, if you think about being coached and you always say, no, I'm going to move my legs when I'm swinging a golf club, because I believe that's the best way to get power because I was a baseball player and that's how we would crank up, right? We would lift our foot up and we would really crank. And that's not the way you do it in golf. So if you swing that golf club, like it's a baseball bat, because you think that's the right way, you are going to have a really horrible round. <laughs> And it will be very painful and you'll get very tired. But if you have a beginner's mind, it would be like, now I have to retrain these expert biases you already have where you have been really successful doing something else. I need you to get out of your comfort zone and really be open to hear me and understand. But taking those, your ability to be coached, that is what you can't teach, right? You have to be willing to be coached no matter where you are in your career. And you have to be intentional about who you ask and what you listen to and then how you action it. And so I would say to you that this sort of management by wandering around makes many leaders uncomfortable. They feel vulnerable. They're not, they don't communicate that way. It's way too, um, it's way too uh, uh, soft skill for them. They like the, I'm going to manage from the spreadsheet, send a directive email, like that's how I manage and operate. A beginner's mind would be, okay, I would never do this, but I'm willing to give it a try. And it might be horribly painful and terrible in, initially, but like going to the gym, you're sore the first couple of weeks you go, but you got to stay dedicated to it and keep going. And then you'll get less sore and then you need to increase the weight. And so you increase the weight, you get sore all over again. So maybe the first time is you just go to a certain group and talk, or you maybe ask questions in a meeting, or you send an email, or you do a survey and you get more comfortable and you keep pushing outside of your comfort zone because growth and comfort rarely coexist. That's a quote from Ginny Rometty, the former chairperson and CEO of IBM. You have to be uncomfortable if you, that's where the greatest growth happens, both personally and then professionally. And, and that is that quote unquote beginner's mind right? That is having a growth mindset where you're willing to buck the status quo, try things, be open and willing to fail, reward failure within your own organization, you know, inspire people to try things and create a culture that is psychologically safe where people feel if they fail, they won't lose their job. And I tweeted out a graphic from your book earlier today. Uh, and it's your book has wonderful graphics in it. Uh, but one of them that stood out to me 
is you've got someone on a podium and they're saying who wants change and everyone's raising their hand. And then literally we just add one word, two letters, uh, who wants to change and nobody's raising their hand. Why do you think it is that humans want change, but don't necessarily want to change? Yeah. And I'd say, um, I'd say that there was a great study and it was done. Um, the stat came out after the book was finished or I would have included it, but Gartner, my, the old company I worked for had come out with how much, um, change enterprise change projects were coming at them as employees. And sort of, I think it's in 2018, there was like, um, you know, six or something like that per year, right. Where this sort of change effort shows up. Because CEOs are like, oh, we're going in one direction. Nope, we're going in another direction. Oh, we're going to book, deploy new technology. Oh, we're opening a new office. Oh, we've got a new brand campaign. Oh, we're redoing our logo. You know, all that has changed for an employee. Okay. And so they were looking at the willingness to change as it relates to sort of digital transformation, very specifically. And last year, there was like 23 change projects that came at employees. When there was only six, it was like the willingness to change was in the 70% range. Now the willingness to change is in the 20% range. So we've thrown so much at our people that it's not that they don't want to change. It's that they're just burnt through change, you know? Uh, and so, you know, ultimately um, there is things that we have to do as leaders to be conscious of the totality of all the things we're asking. And if you're a leader changing in your own group and you're really aware of your silo, because unfortunately it's the way most of the time it operates. And you're not aware that another group is also asking your employees to do something different, et cetera. And you've got five or seven different parts of the company directing change that one individual is absorbing all of it, right? New system, new tool, new manager, new training, new onboarding process, new offices, new logo, new narrative, you know, new product launch, new, et cetera. That employee is having to absorb all of that where at the executive level, you know, you can absorb it sort of at the 20% range, right? I get we're doing all these things, but you don't actually have to use the technology every day that you've changed seven times this year, right? That employee has to absorb it all. So um, that willingness to change, I think, is where people don't raise their hand. They're like, I can't take one more change cycle. Like I am just burnt out, right? I'm not just burnt out for how hot I'm working or whatever. I'm burnt out because every week it's something new or every month it's something new. And I just, I just can't, I just can't keep up. Yeah. There's, it's almost like there's a tipping point here where, you know, you talked about, Hey, if you want to grow, there's going to be some pain. You got to get uncomfortable and we want to explore and we want to go find out information. How do we do that? We got to be curious and we got to have a beginner's mind. Well, it's hard being a beginner. It's frustrating. You mentioned golf. When you start golf, it, you suck. It's not fun. You um, suck. <laughs> it's, it's not fun being a beginner. Um, and and then I'm thinking about people in the C-suite. It's a big part of your work is they also have to share a vision. Like a lot of what you talked about from leadership is, hey, what direction are we going in? And part of that is to say, no, this is the right way. Trust me. Um, I have a larger picture that I can see that maybe other people can't see. And there needs to be a vision. And a lot of times there needs to be, Hey, this is the way we're going to go. And if we screw up, I'm going to own it. My bad. Um, I'm going to take ownership over it. And so a lot of what you're talking about is like, there's a tipping point where if we over index on one and we under index on the other, perhaps we then 
run into trouble. And going back to your point earlier, we have to be intentional about who we want to be and what success looks like for us and create a game plan around that and be able to adjust and pivot when things need that. Um, so it's just interesting to hear you talk because I can see it's like, okay, someone's going to listen to your stuff and say, all right, we're going to take on an exploring mindset and we are going to take on a beginner's mind. And then they're going to forget that part of being in the C-suite is to be an expert and is to say, no, this is the direction we're going to go. And that's what I'm being paid to do and not just always explore. At times I need to exploit the information to make our decision. And so finding that is, I think this is where you do a really nice job of teaching which is this isn't a one size fits all. You need to take this information and make it yours. And I love how you even say this isn't a 50, 50 deal when it comes to focusing on the customer experience and focusing on the employee experience. All you're saying is you need to intentionally focus on the employee experience and where you land on that is where you land. As long as you're doing the work to find out, Hey, what do our employees need? And then I love this piece. It's like, how do we make their job easy for them while also challenging them? (laughs) And that to me is is a challenge. Um, when organizations come to you and they're asking for help and assistance or consultation, if you're back at Gartner and you were putting that Gartner hat back on and your job is to tell them, hey, this is how you do it. How do you go about sharing that information while not prescribing the information for uh, clients? Yeah, I would tell you that that was a huge learning curve for me because I was a practitioner. I had never been an academic consultant. I didn't know how to do that. You know, I, I, I just sort of said, they'd ask a question. I'd be like, well, this is what I would do in my expert's mind. And I would answer immediately. I don't actually do that anymore. Sometimes I'll get asked who's doing it right. You know, and I will give sort of examples, but they'll say, you know, what do you think we should be focused on? And I used to go like, well, one, two, three. And I think I did a disservice. I probably, I'm probably pretty confident I did it. I did a disservice. So now I actually stop and I ask a question back. I start to ask questions back. So I've become, you know, a master asker where I'm leading the horse to the water in that. I'll say, I don't know. What are your employees say is most important to them? Or what would increase employee engagement or willingness to embrace change? Or why don't you think your employees are logging into the CRM system? Why do you think they're resisting using the technology you've just spent millions on? Why do you think, right? And instead of me saying, because it's usually a handful of things. I mean, I know usually it's a handful of, it's one or two of a handful of things. um, Is I'll start to see the wheels turn and they will just go, well, I think, you know, it's bop, bop, bop. Or they'll go, hold on. We just did a survey. We heard these were the top three things. And I'd go, great. So that's the answer for your business. That is the context for your culture. That is the context for what you're dealing with. I can't give you that insight because I'm not in your organization. I can give you trends and what sort of the market is saying and what others are saying. But the the insight you're going to give me about your particular organization is something I couldn't get anywhere else, right? That's that secret sauce. People can copy your products, your services, your marketing campaigns. They can copy all that. It's impossible for them to copy your culture. It's impossible for them to copy the way you lead or the way you run team meetings or the way you motivate, right? Or train, oh, you know, maybe a little bit, but I think you get the point, right? So ultimately this is where the answers lie with your people. But unfortunately through the research we did, this is what we heard. Number one, nobody owns employee experience. 
So no one's paying attention to the totality of what an employee has to deal with to do their job every day. Two, they are surveying their people. And when they capture all the data from the surveys, three quarters of them don't know what to do with that data, which means they're doing nothing with it. So they don't even know what to do with the data. So what does that then do? You asked me the question, employer. I answered you, I'm the employee. I told you here are the things that make my job more difficult and you did nothing and totally ignored me, which means you don't care enough. So why should I care? You want me to change. Why should I want to change? If you don't care enough to hear what I'm already dealing with needs to be fixed before you throw something else at me. And so that kind of approach is that intentional mindset, which is why it's called the experience mindset. It was really about creating a new operating philosophy. That is when you make a change for the customer to chase that ever increasing expectation from them, which we all are chasing, do not forget about your employee because we keep spending money and making effort to reduce the effort for our customers to increase their experience, right? Like it used to be when I was a kid and it was Christmas time, I'd go to the Sears catalog and circle what I want. And like 10 weeks later, something would show up. You know what I mean? Like that was the expectation. Now it's a single click, one click buy. And in two hours you can get it, or you're using your voice. And in two hours you get it. We've spent a lot of money and time and effort on reducing that effort to increase the experience. The unintended consequence was that is a lot of that effort was pushed to the employee, which has ruined their experience, has created this burnout, has created the great resignation and quiet quitting. We just have not been paying attention with some level of intentionality and focus on the employee as much as we have for the customer. And it has manifested itself in this very tight, skilled-based labor market, even though unemployment is low. That doesn't mean you are hanging on to people who are actually skilled and doing the work well. They may just be sitting there collecting a paycheck and you may not be able to attract new talent because the culture isn't one that embraces new ways of thinking, right? It embraces failure and agility to build a resilient organization. We can use all those buzz terms, but at the end of the day, who is responsible for delivering on the company's brand promise? that vision statement you have on your wall, that PowerPoint you deliver, that press release, that earnings release, everything that you talk about for the company, who is responsible for delivering on those promises? It is not the PowerPoint presentation or the Excel dashboard. It is your employees. They are the ones every single day that show up to deliver on the promise you make as an executive. Make no mistake about it, it isn't you, and it definitely isn't your team. It is those individual contributors that are delivering that package, designing the product, answering the phones, driving 100 miles, catching a train, plane, an automobile, right, to go service a customer. They are the ones delivering on that promise. And we've put all of the weight on human resources. And I think we're figuring out that human resources being the point people to hire, to fire, to to run, uh, you know, in a lot of organizations to run things that comp and, and things that are complicated and become personal for a lot of people. And, and also trying to get them to focus on the brand promise is really difficult. And um, I have had people like Claude Silver comes to mind. Uh, she's with VaynerMedia and she calls herself their uh, chief heart officer, and she doesn't have a human resource background, and she's really focused on developing their people and uh, sort of being a extension to Gary Vaynerchuk. 
what do you, what's your vision for the future of people development inside organizations beyond human resources and beyond what we currently have set up? What's your vision as far as where we can go to better, to create a better employee experience? Yeah, I tell you in, in just sort of full transparency, I am not a culture expert or a people expert. It's just not my lane at all. And so I would say to you that um, that's when I first started sharing the research we did, I mean, it was, I was standing on stage and I said, Hey, listen, I think it's, uh, it's, there's no coincidence. Salesforce is a great place to work globally. We're one of the most innovative companies and we're the fastest growing enterprise software company, but could I prove it? And so I very specifically and intentionally focused on that moment that matters when an employee touches a customer. There are lots of things that are part of HR, which I don't cover in the book. Compensation, equity and inclusion, very important, not really in the book. So I don't want you to think if you read the book that you're like, she missed this whole part. And that was on purpose. Like I, if, because there are lots of books written about it and, and I didn't want it to be just targeted for human resources. So the whole concept is if you look at the pieces and parts for an employee that have the greatest impact on their satisfaction and willingness to do what was necessary in order to develop those great products and serve the customer and all the things that are, you know, a part of the uh, customer experience. It is a cross-functional solution. HR has a piece of it, but definitely not all of it because outdated technology, um, broken processes, siloed data and teams, ability to collaborate were in the top 10 re things that employees felt were highly important to fix in order to grow. And you could argue HR does not have responsibility for, for integrating products that a salesperson or a customer service agent uses, for sure. They may not um, have everything to do with the processes that are developed or, you know, et cetera, right? They may say, well, we hire them and onboard them and we make sure that they have access to the HR system if they need, you know, healthcare or a day off or a corporate credit card. Like we do all those things. But the day-to-day -day of their work life, of what they need, HR has very little input. So when I was sharing the research, the number one thing I heard, the first question was, well, first, if it's so obvious, why isn't everyone doing it? Right? Happy employee, happy customer, greater growth. The second one was, who owns it? That was a perfect example of an expert's mind. The who owns it question is, hold on, I need to create a new group, a new silo, with new metrics, new leaders, you know, that's the, that's the expert's mind of this is how I launch a new initiative. I have to create another silo, right? Instead of going, hold on, which is why I called it mindset, right? That this will be cross-functional. This has to be part of the culture. It has to be embedded in every decision we make. That is not a group. That is not one single leader. That is everybody. And so um, the third one was then, how do we measure it? Which goes almost back to that expert, right? Well, if I can't measure it, I can't manage it. If I can't measure it, I'm not going to invest in it, right? All of those things show up and that's that expert's mind firing on all cylinders, right? First of all, wait, hold on. Tiffany's really challenging the way I'm thinking. It's making me a little uncomfortable or I just don't buy it, which is also possible, right? I don't believe that that is in fact the, the, the way forward or, or I think we're already doing it. So I don't have any work to do. Right. And so you get trapped in that expert's mind of they're not actually willing to open it up. And that's why as soon as I start to ask them questions back, 
most of the time they will start to realize they don't know the answer to those questions. Someone in the company knows the answers to those questions, but it's usually the C-suite, someone in the C-suite I'm talking to, right? So either it's an entrepreneur who owns everything or it's a medium business that has a couple roles or it's a, you know, it's a large enterprise that has five or seven roles. And they'll say, I'll go ask this person or that person and that person. I'll go, great, ask them, schedule a call with me again. Let's follow up. And then they'll come back and they'll tell me, you know, what they've found. And a lot of the times they're surprised, didn't know this was happening. That goes back to the management by wandering around, right? If you're just managing on a spreadsheet, the blended employee satisfaction score may be hiding the fact that you have some parts of your business that are really toxic or unhappy or, you know, in the customer's same thing. So that's why having the who owns it, what's the metric is directionally correct, but I have to get them out of that habit that that's where they have to start. It's interesting. I'm just thinking about myself and, and my business. And whenever people ask, Hey, what's the return on investment for coaching? I always say, I don't know. And I say, I don't know, because I could be working with a billion dollar company who is trying to IPO. And um, for them, you know, my work is going to have certain consequences. And then I could be working with a private wealth advisor who is working by themselves. And it's a much different deal. I say all that to say, I have stayed away from the ROI and the measurement. And part of your argument in your books is to say, people aren't doing enough to measure how they're taking care of their employees. We do a lot on the customer side, uh, bigger organizations. And I'm wondering what about it for me is fearful about trying to quantify my work with my clients. And I, I rebranded at one point. And during that rebrand, the company that I hired did try to quantify from my employees, uh, not my employees, my clients, what the experience was like. They tried to capture it. And some of the things that came back were, were actually quite surprising. I was surprised to learn from my customer, my client. Um, but even beyond that, I'm wondering why is it that we might be fearful to ask employees, hey, what's going on for you? And then you even mentioned the second piece, which is once we get that information, we don't necessarily do anything with it. But let's just start at the very beginning. If someone's listening to this conversation and they haven't really thought about the employee experience and they haven't quantified that, what do you think the fears are that come from people when it comes to trying to quantify or measure an experience? Look, self-awareness is, is really challenging. I mean, just even myself, like, you know, like I want to be better at what I do means that I need to know where I have to improve. And just because I think I need to improve on A and B, but others think I need to really improve on C and D. But if I'm not aware about C and D and I just think it's A and B, I'm focusing on the wrong thing. So I might just be repeating the, the bad behavior, the wrong behavior, or, or not a best practice, right? Or I'm not growing at all as a leader, as an individual, whatever it might be. And self-awareness is one of those things that's really difficult. So, you know, even myself, when I was, you know, on the journey of, of trying to be an analyst and a consultant, I had to ask people, what part of what I'm doing is adding the most value to you? And sometimes they'd come back and say, nothing. Like you brought me information I already knew. And, and while I appreciated your time, I'm not sure, you know, a second call is warranted. That's really hard to hear, right? I mean, but you have to be willing to ask. 
And, and then I think, I think that's where the athlete side of me has to really come in because you know, sometimes coaches are harping on you to do something and like you're working really hard and you think you've fixed whatever that bad habit is or whatever you're trying to improve and, and you haven't. Um, and so, you know, I, I take it as well, you know, all feedback is good feedback, even if it doesn't feel good or it hurts my feelings or it makes me feel like, ah, oh, should I do you question myself? Like all of those things. And that's where you need a really strong network around you that then you, once you get that feedback to go to them and go, you know, I've really been hearing this lately. Like just the other day I gave a presentation, you know, and the person, the company I'd given the presentation for, you know, they did the feedback form after, you know, you get a scale of one to five and blah, blah, blah. And someone had given a comment that I was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't think I did that, but maybe I did like, huh? So I went to the person who, you know, hired me to be in that room, right. Or, you know, asked me to be in that room. And I went to them with the survey, which they were also on the email trail. And I replied back and I, you know, said, Hey, this, listen, I'm asking because I'm always looking to be better at this. Do you think I over pivoted this way? Because if so, could you suggest where I might be able to back off of that or remove this and add that? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, and she came back and said, yeah, I don't really agree with what they said because of this reason, but maybe you do this and it would, you know, alleviate others saying that. And I was like, perfect. Thank you. Right. So you have to be willing to then take it instead of going like, ah, they didn't know what they were talking about was hold on a second. Is this an opportunity for me to learn something, pivot a little bit. So the next time I give the presentation, it maybe I avoid people perceiving it as something right. And maybe I was a little more excited about something then something else, you know what I mean? And so it was an opportunity for me to learn, but I wasn't always like that, right? I'd be like, ah, they didn't know what they were talking about. But as I started moving up and realizing the position I've been blessed to have, you know, as my career, you really have to be thoughtful and intentional about what you say, because you're coming in as a unbiased third party and you may put someone down a path that is not right for them. Right. And especially as a coach or, or, you know, an advisor or a consultant, um, you really want to make sure that you are always looking to hone your craft so that you are uh, helping people be as, as successful as they can be. And you're always looking to be better as well. Hopefully that answered the question. Yeah. I've never thought about it this way and hopefully this will make sense. I've never had a client who does not think that they are not self-aware. I, I don't know if I said that right. I've never had a client who believes that they are not self-aware. Mm -hmm. It's pretty fascinating. Like I hear it all the time. People say to me, I'm a pretty self-aware person. Mm -hmm. We ask 20 people, hey, how self-aware are you? I think they all would say that they're self-aware. It's kind of like asking people if they're a good driver and everyone says they're a good driver and we know that not everybody's a good driver. And I wonder if self-awareness almost is overrated because it's an outcome. It's, it, it, it doesn't give us a whole lot of meat. Whereas self-improvement or self-exploration or, or, or learning or whatever you want to put underneath that would be more valuable for us to value in humans. Because what's going to drive self-awareness is your willingness to self-explore or to improve oneself and to grow, to use a term that you use a lot. And, and perhaps that's what we need to focus on rather than saying, you know, if someone says oh, I'm self-aware, it's like, oh, well, 
how willing are you to also focus on self-improvement? And I see this all the time with my work because there are definitely people who don't want to be coached and that's fine. Like if they don't want to be coached, let them be where they're at, let them do what they do. Um, and maybe they are good enough to just be where they need to be. Not everyone needs to be coached, but the ones that want to be coached, they're the ones that typically are are more self-aware. And so I'm thinking well, about awareness versus improvement and how they, how they might play. So I'm going to give you this stat. All right. Ready? 95% of people believe that they are self-aware to your point, Brian, right? But only about 10 to 15% really are which means on a good day, 80% of us are lying to ourselves about whether we're lying to ourselves. Tasha Yurik wrote a book all about self-awareness. You have internal self-awareness, like knowing who you are and what you value, you know, and the things that you do. Then there's external self-awareness of knowing how other people see us, right? But it's, it's a foundational skill. You can't have a beginner's mind if you're not self-aware. You can't be open and willing to walk you know, out and ask people their feedback and unless you're self-aware. Hey, you, Tiffany, can we flip that? Sorry. Yeah. What if it's the other way? You can't be self-aware if you don't have a beginner's mind. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right? because that's really that to me, I find my blind spots come when I'm not staying curious and I'm not continuing to learn. And I just think that's the way it is. And that's the way it has to be. I'm, I'm going away from it. And there are times when I need to not be in the beginner's mind, for example, parenting, like there are times where I just have to make a decision, go with it. And afterwards, my wife can look at me and tell me all the things that I did wrong. Cause I'm going to screw <laughs> up and it's, it's part of being a parent. Okay. Right. But, but being a leader, it's the same thing. You're going to screw up. Like you're going to make mistakes. Um, and there's a time to do it. And so for me, I don't know why this reversal is useful, but it is where when people now say to me that they're self-aware, there needs to be a conversation around, well, how do you become self-aware? And Or ask them doing? to tell you why they think they're self-aware. Why yeah. do you think you're so self-aware, right? So, you know, so let's just take that sort of failure as an example. So being self-aware, and I'm running my team meeting, being self-aware would be, you know, like I said, I wrote a book, Growth IQ translated in 11 languages, became a Wall Street Journal bestselling book. I completely missed employee experience in that book. If I wasn't self-aware, I'd be like, so I wrote this second book. I would not reference back that I missed it to Growth IQ. I would not even see the connection between the two. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I just like move on and be like, ah, I nailed that one. I'm going to go on to another one. No, it, in my mind, right? It's really the 11th path I missed in Growth IQ, which I thought Growth IQ had nailed it all. Right. And sure enough, it had not. So I'm sitting in my team meeting. And if I said I had five people around the table for me, you know, this is maybe a suggestion to those of you listening is to go, you know, I had made a decision that we were going to do this. And lo and behold, it wasn't really right. And this is how I realized it wasn't right. I talked to, I talked to, I did, I did, I adjusted, I blah, 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 blah. And now just, I'd like everybody's feedback. You know, do you think that we're now on the right track? Well, so now as a leader, you've, you've shared that you were self-aware, you made a mistake. You shared the fact you made a mistake. You're super vulnerable. Now you're asking for their input. And if you take the input that people say, and you're like, oh, that was great, Brian. I hadn't thought of that. Or, hey, Tiffany, that was great. I hadn't thought of that. And then you go, you know what? This is what I'm going to do next time. I'm going to do this. So now you've created psychological safety, which is very Amy Edmondson, right? You, you've created this psychological safety where now people feel they can show you or tell you, hey, that's not working. 
where you made that decision and this is what it did to my day-to-day and I didn't appreciate it. But if you don't feel you can do that, the reason you don't feel you can do that is because your leader's not sitting in front of you going, I'm not perfect. I've made a mistake. This is what I've learned. And this is how I'm course correcting. The next thing I'd suggest would be when you're sitting in a team meeting, instead of talking about all the wins everyone had and what's going so well is everyone has to share a story where something didn't work. Like what was your failure this week? What did you try that didn't work? And if people are literally saying, oh, everything I did this week worked, they must, they might not be self-aware or they're maybe not pushing themselves hard enough, right? Or they've gone, become so comfortable and so repetitive that really they didn't fail at anything because it's the same thing every single day, right? So what does that tell you? So I think becoming a master asker, you know, and, and I'd say that if you are willing to be self-aware that it's going to be, it's going to be a, it's going to be a very reflective journey for you. And myself, I still have a ton of blind spots, but I'm better now than I was. And every day I try to be better every day. Will I get to 85 or 90% self-aware? Doubt it, right? Because they just, I don't know how possible that is, but I would like to not sit in the 10 to 15% category where I'm just totally blind to what is happening around. Um, and, and, and I take it to heart and I have to be really careful not to get oversensitive or get my feelings hurt. Like we're all human. Like we want people to validate what we're doing, but if we, if we get a lot of validation and we don't get any corrective criticism, then maybe we aren't showing up in a vulnerable way where people feel they can tell you, or if we're only getting criticism and we're not getting any kudos, then maybe we're really not that self-aware of what's happening. And maybe a lot of work has to happen. Um, and, and it will just benefit both your personal and professional lives, right? This isn't just a conversation about how to be better at work. This is just about how to be a better human. Yeah. My mind was going personal as you were explaining all that. I think of Kim Scott's work around radical candor and to challenge directly while caring personally. And I'm thinking personally, I don't know if I do a good enough job asking my wife, how can I be a better husband? Um, I don't know if I ask my friends, Hey, what? what can I do to be a better friend for you? What do you see? What do you notice? What, what are some of my weaknesses? Uh, b- better son, better brother. And keep. I could keep going, right? And that's and how you one- also show gratitude, right? I mean, because then it's, you're like, so if somebody asks you for advice, let's just say any of those you said, right? Spouse, friend, whatever, right? Asks you for advice. How vulnerable are they being to go, you know what? I'm really struggling. Or I have a question. How should I be a better whatever? Or I'm, I don't think I'm being a better leader. Like they're being about as vulnerable as they can be to ask for help. You really need to show up, right? Like you can't be on your phone and distracted and like, I don't know, man. Like, I think you're great. Like that's not helpful because now we've shut down that vulnerability and that vulnerable side of them to feel like I trusted you enough to come and ask you a really personal question. I might be really struggling and you're missing a signal, by the way, that could be, you know, catastrophic if you're really not paying attention, right? We see it happen all the time. God, I didn't see the signs or I didn't see the signals. I can't believe this happened or whatever. They quit. They did something to themselves to hurt themselves or they got a divorce or whatever the case might be, right? You're like, well, wait, how was I not aware this was happening? So, you know, if you're going to ask those questions, maybe when someone asks you after you answer, just go, was, did I, did I answer that? Okay. Like, I want you to know, I really care. Like, is there, is there something I could have said, you know, and then you like, then you really are showing up 
And that person will show such high levels of gratitude. Like, you know, one time I, you know, one time I reached out, I asked Brian, we didn't know each other very well. And he gave me this answer and I will always forever be grateful for the fact that he took the time, he took the call, he spent the time, he showed up. Like, what better? What better could you do for someone? We don't, we don't do it enough. I, I actually do a decent job of finding out what I'm good at. Um, and people are pretty generous to me to share those things. I don't think I do a good enough job asking people, Hey, where, where are my growth edges? And I was just with two people I respect immensely. And they mentioned that I have great confidence. And I was like, well, tell me what you mean by that. I wanted to understand a little more. It's a big word. And they sort of shared their perspective on it. And then I asked them, well, when does that confidence get in the way for me? And they still sort of used it in a positive light. Whereas I think that my confidence can be negative uh, at times for me, uh, but that's a whole nother story for another day. Uh, I'm leaving this conversation with some action. And when we put a podcast out, there are friends that listen to it. So um, if I come to you and I'm talking to friends right now uh, <laughs> and ask you, Hey, where are some of my growth edges? Where do you think I can improve? I hope you'll be honest with me. Uh, and it's kind of like, you played sports and you, if you had a tennis instructor, you wanted them to be honest with you. Every athlete I've ever worked with, when they had great coaches, they were coaches that challenged them and supported them and loved them up, but also told them what they needed to improve. And I think management works in a similar way. Uh, where, well, even if you yeah, take ahead. the tennis metaphor, if any of you watched Wimbledon, your know, tennis is one of those sports where you can't coach during a match. Like almost every other sport, you can coach boxing, you know, football, like how much by someone's in your ear as a quarterback. I mean, you know what I'm saying? But tennis, that is a penalty. Like you cannot coach. So if you watched Wimbledon, those tennis players, and we started there, right? Some of the best in the world dominated forever. All they're doing is looking up to their box. They know that their team is behind them and supporting them with no words. You know, they might go and even gestures like are no nos, right? Like you could go like, yeah, go and like, you know, hit your fist and give them a hands up and go like, go, right? But you, you know, you, you have to be sort of careful, right? Otherwise. So it isn't that you always have to say something, but if someone knows I'm going to turn around and look back and I know I have my tribe, I know I have my support structure behind me, like, I'm going to go and fight another day. I'm going to play that point. I'm going to brush it off because they're counting on me. And when that tennis player wins, they don't stand on the court with their hands held up. They immediately go up and hug the 12 people that were sort of on that court with them metaphorically. Right. And so that's the kind of, that's the kind of support system you want. You should, and you should strive to be for others. There's a lot there uh, and, and a lot for me to take on. Uh, I thought we'd close just going back with your mom and, and happiness. And there's someone else in the book that you referenced, Tony Shea. Uh, and he's known for you know, founding Zappos and creating this incredible culture. And Zappos, if you're unfamiliar, they've trained other organizations on customer service. Um, and he wrote a book called Delivering Happiness. So it's interesting that you referenced Tony uh, who's like the happiness CEO who also passed away um, and your mom who's giving you advice uh, to to go toward happiness. Um, as you think about Tony and, and his impact as someone that you knew 
personally, uh, what sort of legacy and impact did he live leave with you? Oh, so many. I mean, so many, right? Like, I mean, his whole approach to um, flattening the organization and hiring people for fun and delivering wow from wherever in the organization and letting people really create an environment um, was just legendary, you know, and he even had the university of happiness, right? And, you know, kind of like a Disney university where many companies go to learn from those organizations. Apple learned from Ritz Carlton. So many companies learn from Zappos. So many companies learn from Disney. I mean, it's just that kind of approach is just uh, um, so valuable. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, he left us too soon. But um, that's one of those situations. I, you know, I mean, I knew him, but I didn't know him like so personally that I'd be like, you know, whatever the struggles were, I, I was not privy to. Um, I knew him in a business environment and, and sort of it was very sort of business oriented. Um, but he had a huge impact on my view on customer experience. He had a huge impact on me on, on, on how leaders can create a culture that is so indefensible that at the end of the day, Zappos sells shoes. That's what they sell. Other people's shoes. <laughs> not, I'm going to get into shoes. I'm not going to sell, you know, make my own. I, I sell other people's shoes in a, in a transactional commoditized business. What's going to make me different? The people who work here, who do I want to hire people who want to be here? I'm going to put you through training. And at the last day of training, I'm going to hand you a check for $2,500, or I'm going to tell you, you can have the job. And it, I think the percent was like 15% would take the check and walk out. They didn't really want the job anyway, right? They were just, they needed a job and they wanted to collect a paycheck. Everybody else was like, nope, I want to be here. Like, this is what I want to do. It's not worth it to me for $2,500 to take that and walk out. I want a job. Um, and I want to work here and I want a career and I want, this is where I want to do it. That's a very different attitude. That's a very different culture. And, um, you know, there, there aren't many CEOs, um, that run the business that way or approach it that way, or have that kind of lens on what it truly means, uh, to deliver happiness. And what makes you happy? Uh, I was born and raised in Hawaii. So anytime my feet are on those islands and in that water, uh, I just float on my back and look up. And uh, that is without a doubt, my happy place. And you have a tattoo on your right arm, at least one that I can see. I'm just curious what the tattoo says. Oh, it is the, uh, it is the coordinates of that happy place. That's amazing. Well, with that, uh, Tiffany, first of all, thanks for your work. Uh, it's awesome. I recommend people check out both books, you know, the experience mindset is where Tiffany clearly is at now and, and what she's really passionate about. And we didn't get into it today, but in the book, I would say one of the big thesis of the book is technology and how we use technology to help customers. And we don't always use technology to help our employees, to make our employees' jobs more seamless, frictionless, uh, and honestly, a better place to work. And so I highly recommend doing a deep dive into that book. And there's lots of good stuff in there. And then Growth IQ also has a ton of amazing stuff, uh, especially for companies that are customer facing and are thinking about how to um, unlock their ability to serve customers. So check that book out. You also have a podcast. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, follow your journey, uh, where's the best place for them to do that? 
So I'm really active on social media, uh, LinkedIn. You can follow me there. I don't have any more connections, but you can follow me. Um, I'm active on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and now threads uh, as well. I have a YouTube channel. Um, but I've got a podcast called What's Next with Tiffany Bova. Uh, I'm always looking for feedback going back to self-awareness. So if you listen to this podcast and something really resonated with you or didn't, uh, you know, drop me a drop me a message on LinkedIn and I'd, I'd love to hear your feedback. And as someone who from a young age struggled with feedback, I am going to ask the same. So uh, if you've listened to one of our, I don't know how many episodes we've had, 300, like 30 or 35 episodes, uh, and some have resonated or not resonated, I'd love to hear from you. I I don't always get to know who's on the other end of the line. Uh, and I love hearing from people, whether it's a text or an email. My email is brian at strongskills.co. And then on social media, Twitter and LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast podcast. Tiffany, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you. And hopefully if you ever happen to be in the Washington DC area, we can break bread and, and catch up. So thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Brian. Enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And you have to be intentional about who you ask and what you listen to and then how you action it. And so I would say to you that this sort of Management by wandering around makes many leaders uncomfortable. They feel vulnerable. They're not. They don't communicate that way. It's way too. Um, it's way too uh, uh, soft skill for them. They like the I'm going to manage from the spreadsheet, send a directive email. Like that's how I manage and operate. A beginner's mind would be okay. I would never do this, but I'm willing to give it a try. And it might be horribly painful and terrible in initially, but like going to the gym, you're sore the first couple of weeks you go, but you gotta stay dedicated to it and keep going. And then you'll get less sore and then you need to increase the weight. And so you increase the weight, you get sore all over again. So maybe the first time is you just go to a certain group and talk, or you maybe ask questions in a meeting, or you send an email, or you do a survey and you get more comfortable and you keep pushing outside of your comfort zone. 